Welcome, everybody. We are so glad that you're joining us for part two of our current series called The Waiting Room. And at part one in The Waiting Room, we kicked it off with, uh, with an acknowledgement that sometimes we are forced to wait. And we did that by looking at the Old Testament story in the book of Habakkuk. And today we take a look at refusing to wait. Just as kind of an overview of the series and what this is all about is that the waiting room is an acknowledgement, really, that we live in a time of frozen dinners, powdered orange juice, and instant coffee. It isn't good. We don't like it, but we don't like to wait even more. And that's all the time why we just sometimes altogether refuse to wait, even though we, even though we know it's not good for us, even though we know we should wait. Okay, so uh, during this time of staying at home uh, in my house, we, uh, we picked up the national pastime along with many of you, which is baking. And our house is full of baked goods all over the place. As a side note, if somebody were to tell me six months ago or, or just a few months ago that all sports would be canceled, that young men everywhere in America would turn their attention towards becoming sourdough enthusiasts, I would not believe it, but these are strange times. And so now every household in America is baking all the time. And so this is what happens. I walk into my kitchen and my wife doesn't even like look up from her computer or book or anything. She doesn't have to, does she? No, no. I walk in the kitchen. I see out on baking or the, uh, the, the cooling racks, chocolate chip cookies, my favorite. And without looking up from her screen or book, she just says, don't eat it. I just pulled it out of the oven. It's not ready yet. Don't eat it. And, and what my response is every single time is this. I just look at her and I say, oh gosh, it's so hot. I can't, it's burning my mouth. It's on fire every day, every time. I can't help it. Because why? Because I refuse to wait. Even though I know it'll be better in five minutes, even though my tongue won't be on fire in five minutes, I refuse so wait, and you do too. So you can look at the screen and you can laugh at me from the privacy of your home or maybe outside wherever you are. That's fine. All right. But, but, but I know, I know that you also have had the time where you've taken out of the oven a pizza roll and have eaten it before the recommended cooling time of like two and a half hours, right? Like you've done it too. You've refused to wait and have paid the price. And so that's what we're looking at this morning is what happens when you refuse to wait. And I, I want to talk about bigger things, though. I want to talk about bigger things than just eating something before it's cooled down and maybe burning your tongue for a little while. I want to talk about bigger things, about, about when the weight really trues, truly starts to become heavy. Because some of you know, because you're in the season of waiting right now, and you know the, the weight of, of waiting for some kind of vocational, some kind of job idea to come into focus. There's clarity on, on anything that I'm supposed to be doing with my life and just and, and waiting for that to come into focus. I know some of you are, are, are waiting for the family to come together. Maybe you're waiting for, for a wayward or prodigal son or daughter to, to, to come on home and you're just stuck in the waiting. Some of you are waiting for your family to, to really develop for the first time. You're, you're waiting and people tell you, you would be an excellent mom. You would, be, you would make an awesome dad, but you're waiting for the pregnancy to happen or you're, or you're waiting for the adoption paperwork to go through and you're altogether just stuck waiting. Maybe you want to venture out, you want to start something new, something incredible, something entrepreneurial, and you're waiting for the circumstances to be just exactly right. 
or you're waiting for the opportunities to come on by that you've been looking for and seeking out and now just waiting on again and again. I'll tell you a story. It's kind of, a, it's kind of an American parable by now, but it uh, takes place with a teacher, a psychology teacher instructing her, her students. And what she does is she holds up a glass of water you know, and it's about this full, and the students think they know where she's going with this, and you're half full, half empty. She goes, no, 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 it's not about that stuff. Uh, no, she, she's instructing the class, and she goes, how much do you think it weighs? And she kind of goes around the room, and everybody makes their guesses. Uh, guesses range from a couple of ounces up to a pound, maybe a little bit more. And she said very subjectively to the person holding it, no, no, the glass weight is determined not so much by how much water is in it or how heavy it is in ounces here or there, but the weight is truly determined by how long you have to carry it for. You see, if I just have to pick it up, it doesn't really matter how much it weighs. It's easy either way. But I have to hang on to it for an hour. (laughs) My arm will begin to ache. If I have to hang on and hold it for a day, or more, my muscles will cramp and paralysis will set in. This is what I'm saying, church. The weight, you're waiting, the weight becomes a weight. It sets in as you carry it, as you hold it, it gets heavier. And some of you, some of you have been carrying something around for a long time. Something that maybe a year ago, maybe five years ago, you would have thought as light and manageable, but now, now that it's been so long, You're tired of carrying it. It's too heavy. And listen, you have never been tempted like this before to just set it down and to escape it because you're sick of the weight and you're ready to give up and give in to refuse the weight. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to share with you a story about somebody who refused to wait and see what he missed out on. So know that you won't miss out on the same. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to go to Matthew 26. It's towards the end of the Jesus story, according to Matthew. That's why we call it Matthew. He wrote it. Matthew 26, uh, we're going to start off in verse 14, where it says that then one of the 12, this is the 12 disciples, the 12 close followers of Jesus. One of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over for you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. 30 pieces of silver. That's what it took. Now, a couple of comments on that one. The first one is like, listen, why in the world did the chief priests even need somebody to hand Jesus over in their first place? I mean, finding Jesus was so incredibly easy. Finding Jesus was so easy. Blind guys did it on a regular occasion. It wasn't that hard. All you do is like two steps process. Find the biggest crowd in the city. Go to the middle of the crowd. There's Jesus. Find a crowd, excuse me, pardon me, make your way to the middle of the crowd. Jesus is there every time. Finding Jesus was easy. Why do you need a guy like Judas even to pay him to find Jesus? Well, that's just it. Finding Jesus in a crowd was easy. What was remarkably more difficult was finding Jesus when there wasn't a crowd around him. Because listen, if you're going to arrest somebody, 
You don't want to be the one to arrest somebody in the middle of a crowd, especially when that guy has been healing the sick and helping the poor. There's going to be a riot on their hands, and they probably weren't wrong. So they needed an inside guy like Judas to get to, to get to Jesus when nobody else was around. But I'd underline that phrase, the 30 pieces of silver, because that's important. It's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, you go back in the Old Testament, you see these messianic prophecies, you see these predictions about who the Messiah, who, who the one is going to be. And it, and it says that he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces. He's going to be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. So it's like, I mean, we have like that connection right there. There's like these alarm bells going off in the, in the ears and the, in the eyes of the readers that are reading this back then and also, also here today. So like, that's important. But like 30 pieces of silver, think about it from Judah's perspective. You know how much the purchasing power of 36, 30 pieces of silver had back then? I, I looked it up. It's about 7,500 bucks. $7,500. It's not a small amount of money. Don't get me wrong. It's more than that. But $7,500, I mean, come on, you know, $7,500 is about the cost of a 2009 base model Honda Accord. And why did I pick that particular model? Because the disciples were all in one. I'll be here all week. Not really. I'm going home immediately after this because stay at home. <laughs> why, why would Judas do it though? It points towards the bigger picture. I mean, come on. 7,500 bucks to sell out Jesus? Think about it, church. Like Judas is a guy. He was there. He's been following Jesus for some time now, for years by this time. Judas was there when Jesus got a kid's lunchable and fed a stadium full of people. In fact, right after that story, that stadium full of people tried to forcibly install Jesus as their king, but he ran away, but he, but he didn't want that, but he escaped. Judas was there when a storm came on them. He was in the boat when they thought they were gonna die, lose their lives in the storm, and Jesus stands up and says, storm, that's enough, and the weather obeyed him. Judas was there when Jesus went to visit his friend who's been dead and buried for four days and stands in front of his dead friend's tomb and says, Lazarus, come on out. And the dead man came out. Judas was there, church. He saw all of that. And now I'm asking you, I'm asking you, does a man who sees what Judas saw, who experienced what Judas experienced, sell that out? For a base model 2009 Honda? Come on. No, there was something else going on. You see, I don't think it was ever about the money. I don't think it was about the 30 pieces, the 7,500. In fact, I don't think Judas ever doubted that Jesus wasn't who he says he was. I think that all of those things that Judas saw confirmed for him that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the son of God. He controlled the weather. He raised the dead. He fed a stadium. But he just wasn't being the Messiah fast enough. You see, he wasn't righting all of the wrongs in the world with the expediency that Judas would have appreciated Judas was plain and simple, tired of waiting. And so what he thought is, I'll just, I'll just light the match that will ignite the flame 
what Jesus needs. It's just a nudge. It's just somebody to kind of get things going. It's just, it's just to, to antagonize just the right people and to put them in the, in the right room together so that they'll, they'll be at odds. And I know, I know who's gonna come out on top. I, raised, I watched the man raise a man from the dead. I watched Jesus calm the storm. I know Jesus will come through every single time. I'm just tired of waiting and he needs a little push. And Judas gives him that. That's what he does. He gives them a push. Now, this is what I love. I love that Jesus, for his part, you kind of get the sense in reading the gospels that he knows what's about to happen. He knows the heart of Judas. He knows, he knows what's lurking inside. He's known it for a long time. In fact, a lot of the other gospel writers write about this and looking back, they're like, you know what? There were clues. There were like breadcrumbs all around, things that we should have noticed, but we just, we like didn't pick up on at the time. And we get the sense right now, continuing on in the story, Jesus knows what's lurking inside Jesus' heart. And he says in verse 20, listen to this, continuing on, same chapter. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. That's how they ate. They laid down. Verse 21. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad. All, all the 12 now, remember, they were very sad. And they began to say, Say to him, one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord, question mark? <laughs> okay, so like a couple of things on here. Um, we got to like fill out the character of Judas a little bit because I think, I think he gets cast as like this one-dimensional kind of, he's betrayer and he's nothing else. I mean, which is true. In fact, you look at the Bible, the lists of the disciples in the Bible, and every single list of the Bible, Judas is listed as like last name, the betrayer. <laughs> that, except for in Acts chapter one, there's a list of the disciples and Judas is just omitted entirely. He doesn't make the list. He's not on the list. He's not called anything. He's like intentionally forgotten about. Judas gets cast as like this one-dimensional character, but for them at the time, he wasn't. See, this is what we do sometimes. We see, somebody's, we, we see somebody through the lens of their actions or mistakenly just one action. And even though Judas did many, many things that were wrong, I just want us to see that the rest of the disciples didn't see him that way. The rest of the disciples didn't, didn't look around when Jesus, when Jesus heard, listen, one of you is gonna betray me. The rest of the disciples didn't go, well, it's obviously Judas. He's, over here. he's holding a pitchfork and he's got horns in his hair. I mean, of course we know it's him. No, no, no. They, they trusted Judas. He wasn't, he wasn't all bad all the time to them, not that they could see. It keeps something in mind. They actually nominated and they actually tolerated Judas being the, the keeper of the purse, which is like every once in a while, people would donate a little bit of money so that they could buy some food or help somebody out along the way. And they all trusted Judas to look after the money. He was their treasurer. If there's anything that I've learned in like 10 years of organizational management here at Encounter Church is you don't pick the shadiest guy in the room to be your accountant. I mean, everybody just knows that it's instinct. No, what I'm saying is they trusted him. And they thought, listen, this could be any of us. I love what one commentator wrote about this, uh, this phrase. He said in the, in the language that this is recorded in, the sentence structure uh, that's used here, <laughs> communicates a decided lack of confidence. Like each one of the disciples, all 12 of them, Judas included, looked around and said, Jesus, it isn't me. 
But like, could it be me though? Really? <laughs> I don't know. Help me out. Question mark. And of course, the genius behind Jesus is that, and I just could have been them. It was them. Of course, not all of them sold Jesus out for, for 30 pieces of silver. No, some did it for far less than that. Simon Peter sold Jesus out and just somebody saying, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he said, absolutely not. It didn't cost him anything. In fact, he sold him out three times before dawn. John Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark said, the cost of, uh, of selling Jesus out was my cloak. In fact, he records his story and say that when Jesus was arrested, somebody grabbed onto him and he fled. He was in such a hurry that he actually left his cloak behind. He says he ran through the streets of Jerusalem naked just so that they wouldn't identify him with Jesus. I'd rather run downtown naked than be caught with Jesus. No, no, it wasn't just that Judas betrayed him. It's that they all, they all did. And we all do. So if you think about the times that you are just tired and you refuse to wait and the times that you have given up, you've known strong sense that God was asking you to dig in and to wait a little longer on his timing. And you've just said no. Know this too, that a few verses later, Judas will come, mob in tow, armed, ready to arrest Jesus. And Judas will come up to his friend, his Lord, his rabbi, master, Jesus, kiss him on the cheek. And Jesus, knowing what has happened and what will happen, looks into the eyes of his betrayer and to you and I hearts as well and says, what you're about to do, do it quickly, friend. He calls his betrayer friend. No matter how you've been stuck, no matter how you've refused to wait, listen to Jesus, call you friend. He knows what you're about to do. He knows what you have done. And still all through it all, he calls you And what happens in the remainder of the story is nothing short of a tragedy. That Judas does what he came to do. He betrays his rabbi, master, and Lord with a kiss. Something that's supposed to be so intimate and so affectionate, he uses to have him arrested. And he knows that part of the story. He, after all, ignited that flame. That was the intent. That was the purpose to speed things along. And now he was in custody. Jesus was in custody. Things were getting sped along. He was going before Pilate. He was going before Herod. He was going before the, the magistrates. He was going before the Things were speeding along. This, this, this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders and the political leaders and Jesus and everybody is now taking place. And Judas is saying, now's the time, Messiah. Now's the time, son of man. Now's the time, Jesus, when you're going to call before you an army. You're going to call before you an army of angels and an army of men to come at your defense only. They never come. The army never shows up on behalf of Jesus. Judas just watches as Jesus is arrested and then mocked and then beaten and then nailed to a cross and left for dead. 
It's not the way that was supposed to go. I told you it's a tragedy. Judas gets no redemption story. Judas sees Jesus, his rabbi, master, and Lord in the grave. He is so racked with guilt. He takes those 30 pieces of silver and he throws them back at the temple leaders and says, I don't want it. And he finds a field, a tree, and he hangs himself. What a tragedy. What a tragedy on so many levels. What a tragedy that Judas squandered one of the greatest opportunities of humanity to be able to to sit at the feet of God and to ask any question he wants, anything that comes to his mind, talk about anything in the universe and beyond. And he throws it all away for a fistful of coins that he doesn't even want. What a tragedy that Judas doesn't give it, doesn't give Jesus just a few more days, that he's so short-sighted and so narrow-minded that he could think in the company of Jesus that death is the last word. What a tragedy that Judas couldn't hang on and hang out for just a few more days so he could hear from the rest of the disciples that Jesus was dead and is alive again. And he too can have his redemption story no matter what. What a tragedy. What do we take from all this? What do you take from this story? As I think one of the important parts of the story is recalling and remembering that this is a story that didn't just happen Church, this is a story that happens. And by God's grace, don't make the same mistake. One person said, I love, I love it that God's timing is always perfect. God is never late. Sometimes we're early, but God is never late. The waiting room is simply a part of it. Uh, Max Lucado uh, wrote one time, uh, about the waiting room, literally. The importance of the waiting room. He said, the waiting room, you walk up to the receptionist behind the, uh, behind the glass. I hand over my basic contact information, my insurance card. They tell me to have a seat. The doctor will call my name in a few minutes. I go ahead, find a seat, sit down. I scan the room. I see over here, there's a There's a gentleman in a suit and tie reading Time magazine, a woman over here reading the newspaper, and a disgruntled fella who just keeps checking his watch and sighing. This is the waiting room. Important clarification, this is not the examination room. This is not the consultation room. This is not the treatment room. This is the the waiting room. It would be inappropriate. It it wouldn't be right for me to go up and and ask a nurse for their stethoscope, swing it around my neck, sit down next to the woman reading a newspaper and say, tell me about your symptoms. What's your medical history? That's not my job. I'm in the waiting room, Lucado writes. My job is to wait. God put you in this position. Your job is to wait. Don't make the same tragedy. When you make the tragedy, you miss the redemption story. You miss the resurrection, but 
Don't make the same tragedy because you miss far more as well. Uh, first thing you, you miss when you refuse to wait, I think you miss the provision of God. You know, I, I think about like Old Testament times, I think about God calling his people out of Egypt, out of slavery into, into the wilderness. And you think about provision and you think about how God provided for his people in that wilderness experience. He fed them, he fed them with manna. He fed them with like, like dust, like cracker dust every day. They didn't like it, but it was enough. It was enough for the day, one, maybe two, never more. It was enough. Don't miss the provision of God in the desert. Don't miss it. But listen, God's provision in that story was far more than just the dust that they could eat for a day. The provision of God in the story, what God was providing for them in that story, what he's providing for you today is an identity. He's providing for them in the form of, of shaping them and, perform, and, and informing them and preparing them for the future. Don't miss God's provision now. He's up to something just because you can't see what's happening in the examination room, the consultation room, and the treatment room. Just because you're not there yet, you can't see what's happening there doesn't mean it's not happening. The waiting room is the first step, the part of the process. The provision of God isn't just what's immediately in front of you, because I love this. The highest aim of God in your life is not your immediate happiness. That the aim of God in your life is far exceeding of that. God is aiming much higher than your immediate happiness. God is aiming for your spiritual maturity. God is, is aiming for your resilient faith and shaping and forming. God is aiming for your eternal joy, church. He's providing these things, but these things take time. Don't miss the provision of today, but also God providing, shaping you and providing you an identity for eternity. Listen, you refuse to wait you miss on the provision of God. You miss out also on the patience from God. We've said it time and time again. Uh, how, do you, how do you cultivate, how do you grow patience inside of you? It's a cliche. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Friend, practice, practice, practice. It's a cliche for a reason. The patience of God is developed out of practice. He's giving this to you. Practice at it. Keep at it. The, the, the same techniques, the same tricks that our teacher used when we were in first grade learning math uh, tables, subtraction and addition over and over and over again. And they became just like part of our very soul. Eight plus seven is 15. I just know this. The same is true when you're 30 or 40 or 50. We practice patience until we learn patience. You're in the waiting room. Things are happening. Provision is happening. Patience is happening. Don't miss the peace that also comes from God. Somebody once said that, um, that refusing to wait is, is clinging to control. Refusing to wait, you cling to control. It leaves no room for trust having to manipulate and decide all the outcomes in my life, knowing that and believing that I and I alone am responsible and the one only in charge, it leaves no room for trust. And heart without trust is robbed of the peace of God, knowing that I'm not in control. He's in control at the end of the day. 
C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, and this quote was so good, I try to remember it, I hope that you will too, is that when I want to refuse to wait and I can't take it anymore, I remind myself that I am sure that God keeps no one unless he sees that it's good for him to wait. God keeps no one, including you, unless God sees that it's good for you to wait. Don't miss his provision. Don't miss the patience of God. Don't miss the peace of God. I just want to come back to that glass that some of you have been carrying for a very long time. And maybe it's possible that many people in your life don't even know how long you've been carrying something. I just want to remind you of the words of Matthew chapter 11, words of Jesus, where Jesus says, to all of you who are weary and tired, come to me. I will give you rest. For my burden is light. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Jesus says, let me take that. I'm not asking you to stop waiting. I'm still up to something. But a weight shared is a weight divided. And Jesus says, tie your yoke up to me. Let me carry this too. And that's our aim here at Encounter Church. Let us carry this burden, this weight along with you. Whatever it is, whether it's massive and heavy, whether you've been carrying it in secret and have never shared it before with anybody else, whether it's just something that everybody else experiences too. You're you're tired and you're sick of the weight staying at home and quarantine and COVID. The weight is just too much. A weight shared is a weight divided. Tell us about it. We want to help carry it with you. You can send us a message right now or during this final prayer. You can send us an email at either help for physical needs or prayer for spiritual ones at encounterchurch.org. Help or prayer at encounterchurch.org. We want to be there with you. We want to represent the hands and feet of Jesus who reminds you that his burden is easy and yoke is light. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we acknowledge that many of us are in the waiting room. And in the waiting season, sometimes this has stretched for weeks and months and even years, waiting for health to improve or relationships to come together again. We're stuck in the waiting. We don't think that we can wait any longer. God, remind us of your presence here. Remind us that even in this desert, there's a provision that only comes from you, a purpose behind it all. Remind us that we're practicing patience. Remind us that this is how the peace of you, the peace of God is achieved. God, in all of these things, we want to lift up before you the one who has been waiting for hope to come. And we pray, Lord, that that comes in you, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for the one right now watching, listening to this message online, even as these words come out of my mouth was turning their life over to you for the first time or for the first time in a long time. God, I pray for somebody who's tired of waiting and holding on for themselves. And they're saying, God, I turn it all over to you. 
God, I see your hand of provision and I accept your gift of eternal life. God, take my life. Thank you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.